So this idea of, oh, this reshuffle, just leave this thing. I'm totally burnt out and exhausted and feel so disengaged. I don't feel effective. Oh, I'll just go to another company and that'll fix it. It's not going to be the case. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Anne Helen Peterson. Burnout isn't a personal problem, it's a societal one. My guest today, Jennifer Moss, is an expert on burnout and happiness. She is a Harvard Business Review contributor and nationally syndicated radio columnist. She also previously served on the UN's Global Happiness Council. I didn't even know that was a thing. And authored two books, Unlocking Happiness at Work and The Burnout Epidemic. Uh, can't think of a better guest to have on to talk about uh, some of these things now. So Jennifer, thank you for uh, joining us on the Elevate podcast. I'm so excited to be here and chat with you today. So I always find it's helpful to start at, at the beginning. You know, what what did you study? What interested you when you were younger? What was your first job uh, outside of school? You can start with any of those. So I actually, there is one of those uh, time capsules in uh, grade four that is under my school that says that I was going to be a writer. So I think I've nice. definitely been on the path to, to write, but I studied journalism in school. And so that's sort of where my think the type of writing that I've always been interested in. And I actually started working at this. Um, basically, it's like Canada's version of um, of public television. Uh, it's called TV Ontario. And so I worked there first and I was in copywriting. And, um, and so I've sort of always been in this path towards um, journalism. But then I went to the dark side of PR for a little bit and uh, the opposite side of journalism. And I really did find, though, because I was working in HR services, that it taught me a lot about, um, you know, using evidence, using academic research, how do we partner with practical advice? How do we take all of that really technical information and distill it for people? And that became my passion. But it really was uh, in 2009 when my husband, who is a pro athlete, became acutely ill with Guillain-Barre syndrome and wasn't able to walk. And that was a catalyst for both of us. We moved back home. Um, he was able to walk again six weeks later. And a lot of that was attributed to, yeah, he's healthy, but also just attitude and mindset and, and just, um, you know, the way he thought about psychological fitness that parlayed into a tech company where we took data and insights and figured out how to actually translate into the workplace. Fast forward. I was a happiness expert. Now I'm an unhappiness expert in burnout and, and so here I am now, sadly, depressing everyone with my data. So that that's sort of the, the short and dirty version of my life. That is an interesting story. What what did your husband play? He played pro hockey first, and then he moved to play pro lacrosse. He, he convinced me it was less dangerous. And yeah. He, you know, four concussions after that. Um, very ill, but he never went back to play. It sort of really it did change us. It changed what our kind of our our priorities were, which I think a lot has happened for people too inside of this pandemic. When you have these very big moments, these paradigm shifting moments, it makes you question, you know, what you want to do, how you want to live, what kind of relationship you want to have with life and your and people around you. Um, and that's what really did kickstart our whole next stage of our career. Yeah, I was, I was going to say my next question was be your happiness on, on you're an expert on happiness and burnout, uh, and I know professionally those are related. So was burnout something you experienced personally or or did that come from somewhere else? It's was a total personal experience and surprisingly pre-pandemic, although I did see the signs that I was burning out in the yeah. pandemic as well when writing a book on burnout in a global pandemic was really <laughs> a struggle, but I It was meta. What, it was, there was a lot of meta there. I said it added richness to my writing because I was actually feeling the pain of the research I was writing about, but it was when we started up the tech company and as a co-founder, female co-founder of a tech company, very few females get funded in their companies. It's quite a struggle 
to, to get money. And then if you're married, you're kind of like on the blacklist. Investors don't like married co-founders either. So we spend a lot of time just really trying to get, uh, get from a startup to a stay up. And a lot of what I had to do was be on board and advocate. And I was pressed in every single direction. And then I felt a need to be an advocate for women in this field as well. So as taking on so many more, um, balls that I couldn't juggle. And then as a mother of three kids, and I had a baby in the middle of all of that, a third child, it really was, um, like an it was, it, it was really <laughs> stupid. And I wrote a book on in the middle of that too. So I think I just thought I could do more and high-performing people do that. They turn their passion from harmonious into obsessive and that's the danger. And we don't recognize it very well in ourselves as leaders. And that's why you see a lot of burnout in our group and as startup founders, but I definitely burned out. I had to leave my, my whole company. I just had to abandon it. I couldn't work anymore. I was so ill. I took five months off to rest, reestablish my relationships with people that I had almost, you know, ruined and became a mother again and reestablished and reimagined what I wanted to actually do. And, and I think that's why I write about burnout because it was catastrophic for me, um, but I was able to come back from it. How, how do you define burnout? I really do define it based on the WHO definition, the World Health Organization defined it in 2019 and the, as a occupational phenomena, workplace stress or institutional stress left unmanaged, showing up in those big signs of exhaustion, sort of emotional distance from our job and levels, high levels of cynicism towards work. Yeah. I, I do follow their their definition because so much of us in this space for a long time leading up to that 2019 definition where we were trying to advocate that you can't really look at burnout as an individual problem to solve a self-care. The way that we're tackling it with all these downstream uh, in, uh, wellness strategies, not even strategies, but tactics like you know, apps that are supposed to help you to meditate and subsidize gym memberships and life on site where we do your dry cleaning for you. It's like perks are handling things that actually we need to be solving way further upstream. And so that is where that definition, I think, really helped create some policies and guidelines for organizations to think more critically around burnout and how to prevent it. And, and you know, it's obviously, I, I, it's hard to say this in retrospect, but I think I think you'd agree. So I, I think even before the pandemic, right, it's definitely something that was more talked about now than 10 years ago. Do you think it's actually more prevalent or are we sort of acknowledging the the vocabulary and the existence uh, more? So is it a is it a changing trend or a changing acknowledgement or both? Maybe? I think I think there's both. I mean, yes, it was extremely consequential. I mean, the ILO and the International Labor, Labor Organization actually sit, quantified the impact of overwork alone being responsible for the death of 2.8 million workers in one year in 2019. So this is also what precipitated- I've not heard that's that. Wow. Yeah, it's huge. And it precipitated the WHO to make that definition, also to include it in its international classification of diseases. So it was a big problem for yes. How does that break down by country or culture? Do you have any like, not exactly, but is that like, I'm very curious on that. Well, what we started to see is that it is global. I mean, we did a research uh, analysis and found that 46 different countries where they contributed their answers, lots of qualitative verbatims back. And we found that 89% of people were saying that they were burned out. I mean, across the board. And this is in 2020, but in 2019, when we they, the ILO analyzed the data, they saw there was pieces of overwork in all across, you know, their meta study, but you find it more specifically in places like the US, really a, a big, a big outlay okay. of investment goes into healthcare costs related to chronic stress and overwork, massive impact. There's 280,000 deaths in the US related to overwork. So that's significant. And then you look though, in places like China and Japan, um, really focused on that work ethic, the life flat. I don't know if you've heard about that, this sort of oh, life. I did hear, yeah, yeah. I have heard about hmm. that. Yeah. What's the cause of death? I know it's you're saying it's it's the high correlation, but what what does that actually show up in the car? Is it a heart attack? Is it a 
like, how do they determine that? They looked at overwork and unsustainable hours really playing a role in that. So many hours worked actually starts to increase um, heart disease, uh, signs of stroke. So yes, it's correlated to the overwork, but the WHO just put out another study. This was after that ILO report that showed chronic heart disease impacting people that worked over 50 hours plus per week or more and finding diminishing returns, even in productivity at 50 hours after 40 hours, you only get half of your productivity for those rest of the hours that you work. And at 60, you're actually starting to get sick. So they looked at really, as it relates to hours that you are working and then, you know, the impacts of stress, which could include depression, anxiety, which then leads to other types of illness as a result. It's interesting. I, I feel like, look, the, the you know, Silicon Valley culture and, and how we looked upon our European counterparts, like in the last decade was sort of like, it's totally flipped, you know, from, oh, you guys are lazy and always on vacation to like, maybe this <laughs> is, maybe what we're doing is not the right, you know, one, I actually use this case study in upcoming book, but I think one of the worst examples of it was Marissa Meyer, uh, at Yahoo, you know, just every article was her hundred hour work weeks, her 130 hour work week. You know, she crazed all kinds of things when she built a nursery, you know, and came back after two weeks after she had her kid. Have you, have you ever done the math on 130 hour work week and what it looks like? It's, it, I mean, it's, but, but this like 10 years ago, like that's what people were celebrating. And, and, if they say, look, you don't have to do that, but I'm going to do that. Like that doesn't really work. <laughs> right. It it does not. And, and we're starting to, to see the research. I mean, Jeffrey Pfeffer is dying for a paycheck. You know, he's saying that that work is actually one of the leading causes of death, the fifth leading cause, according to his Stanford research. So he's saying that there's real impacts to it and we see it in in downstream ways. So maybe we're not actually paying attention to it in the moment because it feels so far off, but it does truly decrease lifespan. I mean, you think, okay, it's the difference between me seeing my daughter have a child or not. I mean, we don't think that far ahead. And this is the kind of thing that we need to be considering because burnout exploded in the pandemic. I mean, we were talking about it being something that laid into the pandemic. And yes, I've been writing and researching it for years before, actually started writing the book pre-pandemic and had to scrap about 20,000 words. But what happened in the pandemic is just, it just highlighted what was already there. We've increased our number of meetings, and this is Microsoft Trends data, their recent one, 252% more meetings that we're just having through Teams. I'm exhausted. I get exhausted Exhausted. from meetings, like totally. Not that they're great in person and you shouldn't do eight hours a day, but, but I... I don't have the math to prove this, but I think, you know, two to three hours online and people start to hit a, hit a wall from it. Absolutely. They do because we're, we're so stimulated. I love this research from Jeremy Balanson. He talks about the zoom burnout piece and he talks about this. I thought was hilarious, but true that the only time we would be looking at each other face-to-face this close up would be in real life would be if we were mating someone (laughs) or fighting them. And so we're subconsciously aroused all day long, this hyper arousal. And so at the end of the day, mating or meeting. Mating Mating. or fighting, mating or fighting. And so we don't realize it, but this level of stimulus and because as humans, we're actually supposed to see each other face to face. And uh, so all of this is just causing us to feel stressed. Well, there's some chemicals when you're face to face that, that are released, Mm -hmm. I think that are not released in inner, like that, that cause, you know, dopamine or whatever that don't exist online too. That's it. Your mirror neurons are activated. And the reason for that is that we had to survive on the trot in, you know, on the savannas by building tribes. And we did that through using hand gestures and connecting and looking at each other to say, you can trust me, I'm safe, or I can help. And that's how we connected. And so this way of relating right now is actually kind of against our um, way of, of connecting as humans. So let's dive in, you know, you open, so we have this global pandemic, right? Incredibly hard, difficult, impossible two years, people working from home, people running preschool, you know, in in the room next door under total fear. Otherwise we start to come out of it leads to this great resignation, right? Where, where, I mean, 
sometimes I like, I saw one article, I'm very conflicted on this. And we chat about it before, you know, that 90% of people are looking for new jobs. And when I see something like that, I'm like, Hmm, <laughs> that seems like that, that tells you something in it, in itself around what people think the, you know, the problem is, but I, I you know, my, my viewpoint on this great resignation is there's sort of three three buckets. And I'd love to hear your, your thing. There are people who, you know, came out of this last couple of year and rethought things and decided they are on the wrong path. They want to do something different and, you know, existential life thing. And that, you know, this is the time to get on another path, which, you know, got that maybe two was they're doing something they like or vocation or otherwise, but the people that they were working with and how they were treated and all that stuff was just horrible. And they want to go work and find, you know, different people. And I think those are actually probably smaller buckets. Then there is this bucket where I think there's maybe a causation correlation issue, which I understand of that year was, that was really hard. And I remember being at home with my kids trying to do school and having this job and being scared and being in this job. And it's not that the job was bad. It's just that it was mission impossible, right? For 12 months. And so they're all maybe burnt out, but thinking that a new job you know, is the answer. And now that we're six months into this, I, we're starting to see some of the data on, you know, rebounding or that dream job or, or otherwise. I just remember thinking at the time when people would say, I'm really burned out, like, well, do you want to leave of absence? Like, should we talk about a couple of months? I, I don't see a new job as a low stress situation. So I'm, I'm curious your thought on all of this. And obviously these sort of crazy events cause, you know, major reactions and, and, and overreactions. But I, I think what a lot of people really needed the most was just to take a month or two off. And I understand some companies may not support that, or it might not be safe to have that dialogue, but uh, sometimes just making a change, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the answer. Well, what's so, and I, I'm full on board with what you're saying, and this is a good analysis. And I think there's another component of people that realize that this way of working isn't how they want to work. Like I think of a lot of leaders that are really good at management by walking around and this virtual way of leading is totally atrophying for them. So there's people that really are feeling disconnected and their company is now, you know, deciding to go fully remote or hybrid and people are going into the office to just be on zoom and, you know, why commute two hours to just be on zoom. So there is an element that I think there's, there's a realization that work has changed for good. And so people have to move out of that. But in general, when you look at people, so there's, and it's important to understand that we feel symptoms of burnout, but we don't always burn out. And we, we tend to model that together, this idea of like, okay, well, I'm burned out. Well, you might be experiencing symptoms, which like I said, it's that depletion, exhaustion, the cynicism, the disengagement. But when you actually burn out, and this is based on Dr. Marie Asberg, the only place in the world is Sweden where we treat burnout as a medical condition. It's called extreme exhaustion disorder there, but very similar. And what what Dr. Asberg says is that when you burn out, you hit this wall. So you have this sort of path of kind of dipping and going back up and dipping and going back up. And you can tolerate for that for a while. But when you burn out, you fall off a cliff, just like you hit literally hit a wall. And that's a period where you need pharmacological support. You need therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. You need peer support. You need time. And it takes like 18 months to potentially get back into a place of fully recovered uh, confidence is back to go back into a job. Some people recover faster, but when you burn out, there's not just a dip and then you go back and you're okay again. You need rest, you need support, and you could have PTSD. There's serious consequences to that. So this idea of, oh, this reshuffle, just leave this thing. I'm totally burnt out and exhausted and feel so disengaged. I don't feel effective. Oh, I'll just go to another company and that'll fix it. It's not going to be the case. You have too much to work through. How come there isn't more talk around policies around, you know, everyone's talking about retention and this and paying people more. How come there's not talk about leave of absences or just like giving people the actual time and space that they probably need to come back to any job? There's so much stigma around it, unfortunately, still. And in high production environments, when you look at tech and finance and some of the other sort of legacy healthcare, if someone takes time off, you know, I had this interview for the book with this, um, he was an MD and he said, all of us physicians 
take a sabbatical to go to a university to learn. And we put that on our resume so that no one thinks we actually took time off for health, but actually we're all just taking a year away for burnout. And we talk about it as sabbaticals and it's okay. It's accepted, but we all sort of know that that's what it is. So you imagine if that's the philosophy that's floating around in lots of different sectors it's hard for people to say, I'm going to take this leave because it becomes a medical leave. It becomes medical disability leave. And then you feel sort of like you're broken instead of looking at it like, Hey, this is preventative. Why do we have to get to the point where people are at that place where they are sick? Instead of thinking about it, like I could maybe prevent that hitting of the wall where it's an 18 month recovery. Um, But again, it's just that legacy is so ingrained. Uh, You mentioned Marissa Meyer. Elon Musk is another example of that. You know, you can't change the world unless you work 80 hours a week, like at minimum. (laughs) This this mindset, like you're only going to be impactful. 80 is one thing. 130. She she bragged (laughs) about 100. I did the math on it for my butt. It's like six hours a day that you're not working, seven days a week. Yes. That's basically in China too. We talk about this nine, six, you know, this sort of same thing where you're working all the time, but I mean, still, I mean, minimum 80 hours to change the world minimum. I mean, that is, it's, it's really just not even that 80 hours. It's not that it's this, the legacy in tech, in finance and healthcare, and some of these sectors at risk that you feel like you're not good enough you are, you don't care enough about your job. You're not committed to the team. You're lazy if you're not working those hours. It, it, it's also not connected to outcomes. Marissa Meyer did 50 acquisitions, almost all of which were a failure or, or worth yes, less than they were right. bought for, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, yes. sometimes you're doing too many things and not the few things that matter, right? That's exactly it. And you hear people pushing back, like Jack Dorsey is talking, he's like, F that, you know, and he he talks about sleeping. Yeah. Yes. Like explicitly. And we're seeing more of that shift because when you do measure, and I've spent a decade now working with large firms and looking at, Hey, when we reduce hours and if it, and we increase in, um, or decrease in efficiencies, because so much of it is etiquette going over in meetings, meeting fatigue, yeah. it's over collaboration, over looping. They don't have, they don't have the right outcomes defined. So right. all people know how to measure is, is inputs. I, I, I'm curious. I, you know, what I'm hearing too, also, and what you're saying, I had Marshall Goldsmith on uh, a few weeks back talking about his new book, the earned life. And, and, you know, one of the things he said in that, and he has sort of a Buddhist philosophy and, and I think this is the achievement trap. He's like the, the biggest lie in life in the Western lie is happy when, right? And I think like, I'll be happy when this changes. And, and you know, I've thought a lot about that. And I think this goes to that, right? Oh, I'll be less burnt out when I just start the new thing or like that, right? I mean, that's what, you, yeah, it, it sounds like that's what you're saying that, that, is, that does not work. It does not work. And and so I created a criteria, like a schematic for my personal life after I burned out. And I started to look at decisions based on this criteria of, if I don't do this, will it be a deathbed regret? And, you know, it sounds pretty morbid in some ways, but I do think about it. Like if I don't send out that email, if I say no to something, cause I, I have a real problem of FOMO. I want to get into everything and I want to do it all right now. And I get really excited about projects, but I have to look at it like, well, that means that's 30% less time having dinner with my family if I take on this project. And so will that be a deathbed regret if I don't do this project or if I mess up my relationship with my family? And so this has been very helpful. And you don't realize how often you want to bring things into your life that you think are really exciting. But if they don't actually meet your priority schematic, then you are likely going to, you know, you're going to fail at both. Right. But if you can't be happy now, if you can't achieve it now, now, I think the when this happens or when that happens is it's probably a lie you're telling yourself, right? You are. You're <laughs> you're you have to recognize that that the things that we think are urgent or really important or we're trying to take care of in this moment yeah. are not as important as we make them. And so this idea that I'm just going to keep working and then eventually I can live my life or I'm going to do this now. So then, you know, at some point I can enjoy whatever it is that I'm striving for. Think of how many, you know, how many years you miss actually right. enjoying your life. And we are not great at that. And this is why 
burnout for leaders specifically, I talk to leaders and it's different for employees. There's different levels of privilege and agency that senior you know, people have and people even that run their own business have, but we have to get better at understanding that we have to model the right behavior because if we continue to kind of act like, well, this is how I was raised. You know, I, I was told a hundred hours a week is the right way to do it. Or I need to commit to all of these things because it's demonstrating that I'm committed to the goals or whatever the metrics, then people will just follow suit. And there's never a change in legacy. It's just always going to be about a burnout culture. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate yeah it's 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 interesting what i i know i've heard you say that the solution to burnout is not self-care so what what is the solution if if, because that's what you hear everyone say well well self-care right so that's a i'm not gonna say it's a controversial opinion but that, that sounds counterintuitive it's provocative i mean i think that's why the book has been so successful in the article's have been read. I think a lot of employees specifically, or people just in general feel validated that they did all that stuff and they're still burned out and they don't know why, you know, and they read all the books about how they're supposed to, you know, breathe and take baths and listen to rain for 15 seconds. And it's just not working. So there's a validation there, but we do need to consider that there's two different things. I say that needs to be bifurcated in our wellness sort of whole plan that you need to have wellness a wellness strategy that considers self-care. We need to think about our own lives and how that matters and taking space and taking time and digitally detox and getting rest. That's really important for our own personal lives. But when it comes to burnout, because it's an occupational phenomena, the way that we prevent that is much further upstream. So we're looking at those six root causes of burnout, which is workload. I mean, you can take care of yourself as much as possible, but if your boss is asking you to work, you know, all these extra hours, you're working 70, 80 hours a week or more, you can't solve that with self-care. So workload, lack of agency, where you don't have choice around how you work, why you work, if you're being micromanaged. Working on things that don't really matter to you, I assume, right? Right. You're not excited or inspired by them. So you have no agency around that. Um, You don't have the privilege to say I'm overworked. All of that plays into it. Lack of fairness. So you could be systemically discriminated against. You could be a a woman of color who is a single parent who has been juggling these demands, single income earner, and you're at work and you can't say no. You can't you, you don't feel like you have the opportunity or the privilege to be able to, to do less. Also, you have societal pressures to be even doing more, improving yourself. 
and it's unsustainable. That's why we're seeing females leave the workforce. I mean, like I said, you look at those six root causes, self-care is an important part of our whole life strategy, but it's not what is going to solve burnout. Yeah. It seems like if you're sober three days a week and then go on a bender the fourth, right. It's not, it's not, that's not a healthy lifestyle, right? No, (laughs) and it's probably not conducive to you feeling, you know, mentally well for the rest of the week. So, you know, I, I think there's some generational impacts here, right? Burnout has been a major issue for millennials. Uh, we, you know, Gen X, we never talk about, so we'll just leave them out of it. Um, <laughs> I just saw a generational thing that literally it was a meme on TikTok and it just ignored Gen X. It was like the boomers say this, the one, it's just so funny. It's just like, <laughs> just not even, not even in there. It was, it was oh. very funny. It was a response to I'm going on vacation. And so they had the boomer say, Oh, I haven't taken a vacation in in you know three years, and and I'm not going to take one. And then the other person was like, "I'm going on vacation, the millennial, but you can reach me at these things." And then the the boss was saying, "Where can I reach you on vacation?" To the to the Gen Z, and they slammed the computer on them. So it was a it was a funny uh, it was a funny thing. But they just left out <laughs> so Gen X. Accurate. But um, you know, and like like it seems based on some of the rates of anxiety and depression, it's even worse for for Gen Z. So what what is you know, what's changed environmentally is some of this, you know, the shift towards accommodative parenting, which, you know, is showing up. Um, I, I mean, I can also, t- I don't know if you ever saw this, this movie, like 10 years ago, our town showed this movie, The Race to Nowhere. And and I was like, absolutely mortified. And and I can't believe 10 years later that it's worse, like that all these kids are are literally burning out, like exhausted, falling over the finish line into college. And then they're like, oh, this is the beginning. And they're they're, they're like, yeah, I wish more people had seen that movie. So what like what does this look like in terms of trends and what what needs to be changed? There are so many factors and so we probably don't have time for me to go through all of them, but <laughs> there's so all, many. that was a lot of questions, so I'll give you as many as much time as you need to answer it. Well, there are a lot of factors. First of all, we are you know, we are starting to burn kids out really early that level of competition. You're seeing so many young people yeah. Yeah. And trying to get into these institutions that they've planned to get into their whole lives. And there's less and less acceptance. I think Harvard had something like 50,000. Yeah. Yeah. And there was about like 1800 people accepted. I mean, this is what we're looking at. And so we're pushing young people to be high achieving and then so competitive, then they they don't even get to what their goals are. So they're feeling less resilient. You also see them with this high level of debt when they do graduate. So they go into these first jobs and they have these golden handcuffs, you know, for Gen Xers and boomers at what the golden handcuffs were the house and the spouse. Now we're looking at things like $200,000 in student debt. So you can't just quit your job and then you have no agency. So it's that model of high control, you know, low um, impact and that you don't really have a say in your work. Then you have a global pandemic where what we saw in our data, a lot of the verbatims from from millennials and, and older Gen Zs were things like, um, I started this job in a pandemic. I've never met my boss, never met my coworkers. The team size is 20 people. I haven't, I can't get one-on-ones. No one knows who I am. My career is atrophying, you know? So there's this whole constellation of issues that are impacting young people. And then on top of that, you see more young professionals moving to urban centers, living alone, Some urban centers right now are looking at 50, Washington is like 60 to 70% single occupancy dwellings. So more people living alone, more isolation, a global pandemic with social distancing, disconnect, feeling like you have a lot of money that you can't pay back and you're not going to ever get to those career goals in time to pay that debt back. I'm I'm getting anxious just, you know, <laughs> listening but, to but this. But it's yeah. not a whiny millennial problem. And that's yeah. why you can see I'm passionate because it's like, oh, we can just put it off as you're just a whiny millennial and you just want work-life balance. Like that's not what it is. It totally diminishes what their experience is right now. And we're going to see a lot of young people leave the workforce, do their own thing, freelance, gig economy is growing, and we won't be able to retain these really incredibly talented young professionals because we're just not seeing, you know, beyond our nose right now. But there is a balance, isn't there? I mean, we, we've seen this dramatic shift, you know, to power balance to, to the workers, you know, and when this happens in anything, you know, whether it's crypto or otherwise, people get a little mm-hmm. arrogant and they, you know, they use their newfound 
power and they, you know, Hey, I'm interviewing for the company, but tell me why you want to hire me. Yeah. You know, and so, and so and can you pay me in crypto <laughs> up until this week? Right. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, part of that, I would say like, there's a difference if you want to be your own boss and doing the gig economy, or you want to be part of a, a, a team. I've told this story a lot, but I was on a panel last year and, you know, he said, what do you think the trend in the workplace? And I said, you know, I think, I think flexibility is the thing that people want more. And mm-hmm. the CHR next to me, I said, I think people want to work where they want on what they want and how they want. And I like, just couldn't leave that alone. I was like, I mean, <laughs> like, that's great if you're going to run your own business, but I, I'm, you know, that's kind of like, doesn't work as part of a team. You know, I'm going to take as many shots as I want. I don't care what anyone is doing. So, you know, I use try to be in the middle on, on most things. Like, there is a utopian version that work is perfect. And, and, you know, sometimes work is not all fun and games. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think businesses are being asked to take on a wide range of responsibilities now that they've, you know, never had to do before. I, I love what you're saying because I'm the same way. I feel like we swung the pendulum really far in one direction. Super fast. Yeah. I'm, so getting, fast. I'm getting nauseous from the swings in the last couple of years of everything has been supply shock, demand shock, supply shock. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's overwhelming. And you know, there's there was this cool kind of graph that I saw of just how fast we've adopted lots of different things in our lives. So not only did the pandemic happen and we're doing all this, you know, stressful stuff and our learning curve is like vertical, but we're also adopting all this new way of behaving, telemedicine, teletherapy, you know, the way that we're consuming food and purchasing things, it's just so rapidly sped up. And so this idea that we're in the future of work, this would have never been the future of work. This is the multiverse or the whatever of work, you know? And so kind of understanding that we can't really use some sort of frame of reference to to think that this would have been what it's like in 20 years. No, this, this is just different. And I think that we need to recognize that sometimes, especially after two years of working remote and kind of getting comfy, that our brain has literally changed. The neural wiring has been built on habits that we formed and employers are kind of in this stranglehold right now because it's a bottom line issue. People are just saying, I'm going to quit. So now they're kind of having to respond to that. Yeah, and some of the managers are are doing their best. Like I actually think the burnout I see now is the leadership burnout because they're like, look, you know, I, I had was worrying about my employees, my parents, my kids. Like I'm worrying about everyone. And and people are walking in and telling me all their personal demands. And I've got, you know, and now you're seeing, you know, at least right now, I think, you know, that there's this and this is in the marketplace, but this repudiation of unprofitable companies, right? Where there's going to be a little bit of a reckoning to, hey, we got to focus on a business that makes money. Uh, you know, it's not as easy <laughs> as it looks all the time. Yeah. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. It's actually really hard. I was doing this talk throughout the pandemic, exhausted leaders leading exhausted teams. And (laughs) it's just so, it was really just like, I had to help leaders understand that there's a lot of things that are out of their control. And so it's about controlling the controllables as an individual, controlling the controllables as a leader and recognizing that there's only so much that you can do. And the social contracts with work have changed. I mean, we used to not want our employers in our business. And now if they're not, you know, taking care of us, or there's a sense of support and mental health and some of these other personal needs, then we will leave. So there, that shift has also been really critical. But I do think what we don't recognize 
recognize is that there are some things for us as human beings that are good for us, you know, spending time together, having ways to collaborate, getting connected, being able to recognize that it's a, it is a contract. It's a having some challenges that you solve together. Right. I mean, it's not, yeah. And it's about mutual respect. So you can't just say, oh, well, I want all these things and that's what I'm expecting or else I'll quit. We need to still recognize that the business is only going to stay in play if it's making money and returning value to shareholders or however way that or impact, yeah, yeah. whatever that is in stakeholders. But so we need to make sure that we understand that, again, the pendulum has to hit this Goldilocks zone where for me as a well-being expert, I would say that the more conversations that we're having about mental health, the fact that things are changing, the fact that we are, you know, bringing in more upstream interventions to support health and well-being and happiness, that's a good thing. And sometimes you have to have a catastrophic moment to really build the true resiliency in our organizations and get people talking about it. But it's also can't just be one-sided or we're not going to be profitable and stay in business. Oh, I agree. I agree. To me, that has been lost in the narrative so much. Like, I think I know companies who are like, look, you want to go watch your kid's soccer game. You have a thing during the day, like totally fine. Like, but then, you know, when there's a million dollar sales pitch or whatever, and it's after hours, you can't say, oh, well, don't bother me after five because you, then you're asking for the flexibility within nine to five. Um, You know, a story someone told me uh, last year was that, and I think it was in Europe, they were launching their core product and, you know, they have statutory vacation over there. And all the developers were like, we might run out of money if we can't launch our product into the market. So I understand that you're, but this is to me as part of being a team, I understand that you're entitled to this, but you also have to be bought into the mission enough or whatever. I, I, I think the give and take is really important. And I think when I say flexibility, I think that's what people are looking for. Again, there are going to be times, it shouldn't be the norm, but there are going to be times when particularly in a work, if we're moving away from the nine to five rigid workplace, that it's really important to the health of the business. And you're asked to do that once a month, you know, not every day, but at the same time, and someone says, look, my kid is, you know, at the course today and I want to go watch. It's like, go ahead, go watch that. Like that's the, but, but I think the give and take is, is important. It's like any relationship you expected to be mutually beneficial, you know? And I think that, when we kind of get into this place where it's completely myopic and completely self-serving for both in it's been myopic and self-serving in a lot of ways both for ways, organizations. Yeah. And so now it's sort of switching and there in no circumstance does that work in a balanced way. So it is about figuring out, okay, what does flexibility look like? And I always think like, you know, in our startup, we always said never waste a crisis. Um, right. You know, and we did move from, from startup to stay up and we were successful in doing that. And I think one of the, the things that we always would say is like, how do we reframe this? How do we acknowledge that this was really bad and sucked and we need to learn it? And so it's like a yes. And we also are going to be able to be more, you know, uh, responsive or our customers are going to be happier. I mean, we need to think about that, about the pandemic. This was really hard. And we have an opportunity to kind of shake things up and be better and be different, but we all need to be on that mission together so that we can make work, the future of work, profitable, successful. Our stakeholders are happy. People, our customers are happy. Profit is not a bad thing. I think people, we've been in this weird 10-year cycle where we go through these things where the investment world decides profit doesn't matter. And then it decides that it matters and there's a... (laughs) a pretty big reckoning. (laughs) There is. And what we have to also recognize is that having well, healthy, you know, not burned out (laughs) people, like you then have profit. So that's the thing is that we've, we've not trusted that the investment in that is a need to have. It's always just been, oh, this is kind of fluffy happiness at work. Like that's really great. But when it really rubber hits the road, it's like, okay, well that can be scrapped. What we need to understand is that when you look at all the measures of, of shareholder value, of stakeholder value, of EMPS, NPS, all the things that we track, if you have healthier, well, sustainably working uh, staff and workforce, you will have all those things. So now here we are, let's swing that back in the middle, stop burning people out and look at what matters, start measuring even just self-reported 
you know, (laughs) job satisfaction. You know, you as a manager, ask your team like, okay, we're going to do this thing. We're going to measure goals, but we're also going to measure whether you're happy here. I mean, so simple. And then see how that translates. Yeah. Employee and and, and NPS. It's a great, gives you a great example of where you are. So one thing I want to make sure to ask you is, so we've been remote for 14 years, but before the pandemic, we would hide it from people. We would, you know, I, I, I think it was like, for, you know, went from sort of like hiding it to writing a book and speaking on it. It's very, very interesting. But one, one of the things was like, there was an assumption in companies, oh, if Jennifer's working from home and if you can't see me right now, I've got my air quotes. That, 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 that was like, those people literally weren't working, I think in a lot of cases. But then the, everyone went home and the data showed that, you know, without boundaries, they were working more and, and always on, right? And we've got pings and notifications and all, all this stuff. And, and it's actually people are working more and stressed out. So how, how do you recommend companies and, and people think about boundaries? Because I have to assume this is one of the biggest sources of stress and burnout. It's a huge aspect because we are not separating work and life. And, you know, we hear all that. It's not working from home. It's living at work. I mean, we all feel (laughs) that. And I know for myself, you know, especially where we were based, um, we had a long shutdown. So it was homeschooling and that's not anything I'm good at and and juggling. And it was really stressful. And so I think that what we're seeing now, and it's coming actually into Canada, is these right to disconnect laws. You know, France started it. It's all over Europe now. I can't see it coming to U.S. soon, but it may. Um, we are forcing guidelines on organizations because they're not doing it themselves. And we need to get more people to think, okay, what are the most effective guidelines within our team? How do we make it so that Joe can go and watch his kid play soccer, but also when there is a, like a compressed workload that we can get the team rallying around that. And so creating more guidelines around a, you know, looking at costs of meetings, audit your meetings, figure out how much you're spending on them and reduce that, making sure that you have times where you say, okay, at this period of time, we are disconnecting and understanding that if we actually make a time where that is, you know, we are not supposed to communicate with each other, that's fair. But if there are times where we need to be able to stretch those guidelines, we can't, they're not baked in policies. It's about having mutual respect team to team and giving managers the autonomy to do that, but making sure there's also a broader guideline so that managers can't take advantage of that in their teams. And if we do that, we also improve our diversity, equity, inclusion, because some people, if they're the primary caregivers, which tends to be women, statistically, they're the ones that have to be off. They don't have choice. We cannot force this, the us and them, you know, to the, those people who can connect at 11 or eight or five or whatever during dinner time versus those that can't, because we're going to see a real lack of diversity. All of these things are, again, they're supposed to be agile. We're supposed to test them. We're supposed to trial them. And then if they don't work, you know, we keep the things that are working and we dump the things that don't. I mean, look at this as a, as an agile process and not be married to how it was. No frame of reference here. We don't know what we're doing. So, you know, quick iterations of this process until we get it right is how we're going to make those changes. No, I, those are those are really interesting points. I mean, one of the one of the tactics, like I just, someone mentioned me years ago and I use like, for example, you know, particularly when I was the CEO, um, I, I like on a Saturday morning when it's quiet with my cup of coffee to just clean out my email, right? And and I'm not expecting a response from anyone, but if you send one as a CEO, then people need to have to respond. So I remember hearing about it years ago. I've been doing it since then. I just use delayed delivery on any email that I am sending outside of normally acceptable hours to 8 a.m. the next morning of the business thing. And so, you know, people wondering why they're getting 100 emails from me at eight o'clock, but just a really small thing to say, like, look, just because I'm sitting down now and this is a good time, because there's power dynamics in this, right? In terms of, I might not be asking for a response, but someone feels like they should respond to the CEO of the company when they get an email on a Saturday. So I've found that to be hugely uh, helpful just to use that little trick. I love that. And you know, the, the the change is happening through incremental tiny adjustments. It's not this big macro, yeah. you know, giant, oh, we're changing our values to be no burnout. I mean, that's just not going to work, right? So it's just these tiny hacks. And there's another one 
too, because we have this toxic productivity. Now we have this urgency to answer things all the time. And so someone will say, I need this, but they're not, we need to be better as senders to say, you know, I'd I'd love to see this by, if you need a timeline, I'm looking at this next week, this is an urgent, you know, more communication on these simple things, even just meetings, being able to say, Hey, I know you're a great contributor to these meetings, but you don't really need to be here. I want to give you your time back. So if you want to join, join, but if you don't, don't like tiny little steps in communication that can make people feel like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not a good contributor. I'm not valued. We're giving you the gift of your time back. You know, we're not stealing time. This is a way that we need to just be better in these small ways to communicate over communicate right now about what our expectations are. And that seems like, Oh, that's more work, but it actually will reduce the workload in the end because people will have so much more, time to get their shit done in the day. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. So we'll, excuse that. <laughs> I hope you know you might have to bleep that yeah, out. No, it's all right. Well, I don't know what countries that's okay. And I think that that, that passes the <laughs> test. Well, I, I you know, taking that another level, tying two things we talked about before. So you got tons of recruiters and recruiters are salespeople and they're calling people now and Jennifer, come work for our company. It's amazing. It's going to fix all the problems of your last company. I know you wrote an article uh, last year about how to identify sort of a toxic workplace before joining it. I know, look, everyone's saying all the right things. People are also taking jobs in like 24 hours, you know, and stuff. So what what are some good signs that what they're telling you may not jive with what's actually the reality going to be like in that organization? Well, I mean, first... After you've gone through this decision, and I say this is the most important thing, after you've gone through this this experience of saying, okay, I'm going to leave, this is toxic, you need to spend some time actually analyzing what were the things that you deemed as toxic, because it's really different from person to person. Is it workload? Is it relationships? Is it, um, you know, that I didn't feel like I had the opportunity to speak up? I didn't feel psychologically safe, you know, those kind of things. You have to really narrow down what your thing is that triggered your burnout. And it could be multiple things, but try to get more clear on that before you then move into another job because you could be looking for the wrong things that you, you know. It's like dating too, right? I mean, I think people, they forget the things that they liked. uh, And so they tend to run into the opposite and then they're like, oh, wait, you know, now I, I can speak truth to power, but I don't like anyone I work with. Right. I, I, (laughs) yeah. These are exactly like we need to do some journaling and some self-assessment before we decide to quit, but also, you know, what are the things that I could potentially change here? And if that can't happen, then yes, I quit, but I'm going to make sure I attract the right job in the next one. And so, you know, if, for example, if it's workload and you're constantly hearing in the interview about how you're a hustle, you know, we hustle or we wear many hats, that one, like we wear (laughs) lots of hats and we're really, you know, entrepreneurial. It's not a fashion statement. Yes. No, like we're so we're really entrepreneurial, like, and, you know, we like you to hit the ground running, you know, those are the kind of things that mean maybe you don't have very good onboarding or they're desperate. They have a huge vacuum of attrition right now. And they just want you to be able to kind of learn baptism by fire. Some people love that. They crave that. They're excited for that. They were missing that in their last job. Others that is a real sign that you could be going right into a space where you're not going to necessarily get the mentorship that you're looking for or the the training or the onboarding so it's all about knowing what your what your deficits are and the things that you you want in your next job and then looking for those signals and there's lots of different ways that we can start to look for specific things we want to also be asking you know if we get down the line and we feel really confident, we want to be asking if we can have an, an employee interview and have conversations with the rest of the staff and find out, you know, what's going on internally. How, how do you know what their benefits plan or what is their strategies around wellness? You know, if that's something that's important to you, then you should be digging into that. There's a lot of information that we can gather that we should be to make a really smart decision or else just continue to take time off or work in the job until you're ready to have a better scenario. Or we're just going to see people constantly reshuffling and that's not good for anyone. So is there a specific like cooling off period that you would recommend? Like, like don't do this with it, like take two weeks. There's just a lot of pressure to move quickly these days. And it feels like lack it's like buying a house without an inspection or buying a business without due diligence. Right. We're seeing a lot of that. Actually, this, this article that I just put out for girl boss, the I was answering a reader's question and she was saying like, I've taken a medical leave for burnout and I want to get recharged to get back in my career. So she's already thinking like, 
okay, I got to get back into this job or this next job. And instead of actually spending time recovering, it's like, okay, now I'm going to start job hunting, which is terrible for actually helping you to recover. So it's important to rest and it's important to actually get really clear on, you know, what you want to be doing. And like I said, you're doing that analysis, but you're also, and I talk about this, actually this rest deficit that we're in, we're in this, like this sensory rest, creative rest deficit. We're not getting time to actually pause. We have this toxic productivity. You know, if we're not learning a language while we're recovering, plus baking bread from scratch and Marie Kondoing our kitchen, we're somehow failing at, you know, at still being productive in the middle of needing to get rest. And that's a product of, you know, our society, but it's also a product of the pandemic because we've had to work on these supercharged hours for so long. We need to take a moment to establish, you know, what is it about our goals and our career and our life And sometimes that takes time. So putting a time window on that isn't a good idea, but just not using that time to recover is only just going to extend the amount of time you're away. Interesting. All all very good advice. And and again, I I think this, you know, generally measure twice, cut once is is a good recommendation. Um, I think I see a lot of people like like when you let emotion get into your decision making and stuff, it it feels good in the short term, but you might not make the decision that you actually needed or wanted to make. Yes. Write it down. Spend time actually really. I mean, for some people, the idea of journaling sounds again, sounds, yeah. I don't know, not really um, effective for them, but when you write something down and you see it, I think it makes it just so much more clearer and you get real honest with yourself about what, <laughs> what your life is supposed to be. We think like we're over the hill. I'm 45. It's like, Oh, I got to figure it all out. And, there's a lot of work left in me, a lot of hours, and it's never too late to to make an adjustment to your life that's going to increase your happiness. All right, Jennifer, last question. And this can be, it's multivariant. So it can be singular or repeated or professional or personal, but what's a mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from? One of the biggest mistakes that I made, and I think I've shared it, is just that I have had so much career FOMO and I really wanted to be all things to to all people. And I failed. And that failure in doing that was so helpful in my journey and the rest of my life. And I'm the most in like a sense of joy right now in what I do. I'm very particular about the things that I spend my time on. I feel really connected to the job and it gives me fuel and I'm passionate about it. And that's because I make the decisions um, about my life and my work all integrated. And they're all part of what I want to think about as who I am as an individual, as a person, and how much impact I'm having on the world um, based on my my happiness. And that's not selfish. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I think that's great. Great advice for anyone. Now, where, where can people learn more about you, your work, your books? Where's the best place to go? Everything's sort of on the website, Jennifer dash moss.com, yeah. um, which is pretty easy to find. I'm, you know, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn because I'd love to have conversations there around these topics. And I find people are highly engaged in the burnout topic on LinkedIn yeah. for some reason. Well, the hashtag is probably um, trending. Yeah, it's pulsating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, but I mean, the website is where you can get in touch with me and I'm always happy to talk. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for sharing your insights. Uh, I know this is a popular topic and I can, couldn't think of anyone better to have us talk to us about it. Thank you so much, Robert. It was so great talking to you. I love your show. So I'm so pumped to be on it. Thanks for inviting me. All right. You can learn more about Jennifer and her work, and we'll include links to some of the things that she just mentioned on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I have a very brief favor, and that is, could you please help leave us a review to help new users discover the show and great content like we had today? Uh, Thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, 
and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.